Romans chapter 3. We will be consummating the third chapter of the book of Romans today by God's grace in preparation for chapter 4. The title of our message as we begin to contemplate these things is The Pilgrim's Progress Through Romans. This is a journey of the people of God here at Grace. We have a New Year's theme because we like to be on the same page fundamentally to see what God is doing in our life, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. That is Paul's ground for argument. To everyone that believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile, because in the gospel, which is the theme of the book of Romans, is the righteousness of God revealed. Dikosunii is the Greek term for righteousness. Righteousness is the big theme for Paul. And what Paul is doing is arguing as a lawyer for God that God is righteous in everything that he does. You really want to know that as the premise of his labor because we are closing out what I might call the apostles' opening arguments. He is in the courtroom of the consciences of men. He's dealing with the carping arguments that men bring against God as they assess how God rules the world, how he runs the world. You say you are God, then why is all of this happening? Well, if you listen to God, he'll tell you why. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who are constantly trying to hold the truth down, cover it up constrain it, distort it, modify it. So God is really in a controversy with mankind because mankind is in controversy with God. That's the framework here. And out of all the people, we have a man who was also arguing against God, who is now arguing for God and the apostle Paul. So the book of Romans is an anthology of the gospel penned by Paul, given by God, and it again, ladies and gentlemen, is about the righteousness of God. God's right to judge human beings, God's right to declare human beings under the wrath of God, God's right also to show mercy on whom he wants to show mercy. You, you, you might think that's strange, but there are men and women who argue with God's way of showing mercy. From chapters one to chapters three, what you and I have learned is that there are two categories of people denominated or nominated, expressed under Paul's theology, and that is Jews and who? Gentiles. And what Paul has been doing is proving that the Jew is not superior to the Gentile. That's his argument. His argument is both from a sound theological premise, but it's also from a personal experience. He was a Jew who verily thought that he was better than a Gentile because he had the law and knew the law and spoke the law until he came to understand that he was no better than them because when the lawgiver showed up in his life, he persuaded Paul that he too was under the wrath of God. Knocked him down on the Damascus road. Proved to him that he was a murderer by nature because he consented to the death of the first Christian in the Bible, 
whose name happens to have been Stephen. And when God revealed to Paul what we call the first work of the Spirit, which is what? To convince you and me that we're sinners. What a precious work, because until you're convinced that you're a sinner, the righteousness of God in Christ means nothing to you. You'll meet people everywhere in the world as long as they are leaning on some form of their own goodness. They will have little regard for the righteousness of God. So what Paul is doing, he's arguing in the courtroom of men. He's speaking to the Romans, but he knows this this letter will reach the world. And he wants human beings to know this. God is right in executing justice, but he's also right in showing mercy. Now, again, I want you to capture that because it's not so much that God shows mercy of which men argue and carp and oppose, it's how that God shows mercy. He shows mercy in a way by which human beings cannot steal his glory. Now, this is the real issue. Now, how pathetic are we when we need the mercy of God and then we're going to argue with him about how he provides it? The title of my message as we begin to work through the closing arguments of chapter three is the Pilgrim's Progress through Romans, Jesus, our stand in righteousness. Learn that term, child of God. Learn that term, Jesus, our what? Stand in righteousness. You know, when you have a brother standing in your place, You're in a good position when that brother has all of the apparatus, all of the resources, everything necessary to represent you and more. The only hope that you and I have before God is a stand in righteousness. But now that brings some humility to you and me because it infers, it implies, yea, it plainly declares that I have no righteousness of myself to stand before God. How is it that we stand before God righteous? By our stand in righteousness. Learn it and say it well. I'm getting ready to argue with Paul for God and Christ that there is none righteous, no, not one. If that's the case and anybody is found to stand before God in righteousness, it has to be a righteousness outside of themselves. Otherwise, we're dealing with a contradiction, are we not? If there are none that are righteous, then how can any of us be called the righteousness of God? It has to be because of a stand in righteousness. Did y'all get that? It's extremely important for you and I to understand that's Paul's argument. He is laying this out in what he's going to do in chapter four, starting next week, the Lord willing. He's going to bring witnesses to the stand. That's what you do in a courtroom, don't you? After the argument for the defense is laid out in its fundamental case, then they bring witnesses to testify that the argument is valid. Next week, we will hear from Abraham, the father of all the faithful. Then we will hear from Abraham's son, David, who is the hope of Israel. And then we will come to understand that both Abraham and David stood on one ground. And that is the stand in righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
This is what Paul will be arguing, and you and I want to walk through it right now. Point number one in your outline, there is none righteous. Would you agree with that? Right. No, not one. We should have sung that today, right? No, not one. No, not one. Um, There is none righteous, as the Apostle Paul lays out in chapter 3, verse 19. Look at it again. Here's what he says. Uh, I'm sorry, starting over at verse number uh, 10. As I'm sorry, verse 9. What then are we better than they? No and no wise. For we have before proved both Jew and Gentile that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. What? No, not one. Now, when you hear a proposition like that, you and I know that's a dangerous proposition because that's a triple, triple negative. There's none righteous. That's negative. No, that's negative. Not one. That's a triple negative. But the way it's constructed is it's arguing for no exceptions to the rule. Whenever you and I use absolutes, we better know absolutely that we're right when we're using it. Okay, and so what Paul Paul is arguing is if you look high and low, if you go back to the creation of the world, if you deal with the first man and you project this all the way to the last human being on the planet, if they are examined under the scrutiny of God's law, guess what we will all discover? There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, I'm not going to sit here and belabor this long with you because I happen to know that this community here at Grace does not argue with that conclusion. You know that if nobody else was unrighteous, you're unrighteous. Is that true? Yeah. Right. And, and, and what that would assert is, is that if every one of us are persuaded of Paul's argument, there's none righteous in this room. There's none righteous in this room and we can keep it moving because we agree with the argument of the defense. Do we not? There are three sub points then that we want to work through with this fundamental argument. There's none righteous. No, not one. The grounds upon which that assertion is laid is clearly given to us in verses 19 and 20. Listen to it here, because, again, this is the strategy of the apostle and it should be the strategy of the Christian. When you and I speak for God, we need to speak for God accurately, and then we need to speak for God biblically. We need to speak for God accurately. When we say, thus saith the Lord, we should be able to go, the Bible says, and prove what it says. Are you guys hearing what I'm stating? Notice verses 19 and 20. Now, we know that whatsoever things the law says, there it is. What do you mean by law? What do we mean by Torah? What What do we mean by the Tanakh? What do we mean by the scriptures? We mean from Genesis to Revelation, God has decreed the condition of mankind as being sinners, has he not? So we say with Paul, we know that whatsoever things the law says, it says to them that are under law. Now, didn't we learn with Paul back in chapter two that both Jew and Gentile had the law with them? The Jew had it outwardly in the Decalogue. The Gentile had it written in their heart. Didn't mean the Jews didn't have it in their heart as well. The Ten Commandments came in as a kind of second code to let Israel know particularly what God mandated. So both Jew and Gentile, we know God. We know him at the moral and ethical level. We know him at the fundamental level of what is right and wrong, do we not? There's not a society in the world, ladies and gentlemen, that doesn't have the same basic kind of governmental and judicial structure, no matter how simple it is. Human beings know that you can't steal. 
They know that you can't lie or, or commit what we call uh, false witness. You can't bear false witness. Human beings know that you can't commit adultery. You can't uh, take another person's property. We know that you can't murder. We know that. Human beings know that you can't defraud your neighbor because these are intrinsic to the violation of the fundamental principle of love. When a person is operating out of love, you know what the Bible says? Love doesn't work ill to its neighbor. Right. I I can sit on that for a moment because the antithesis to sin is the love of God. When a man or a woman is operating out of the love of God, you and I are laboring to do two things, honor God and honor our neighbor. Well, how do I honor my neighbor in love since love does not work ill to my neighbor unless I have a standard by which I can know how to operate them with them on a social level? You agree with me? You have a home. I have a home. You have goods. I have goods. What I am said to do is not covet your goods, not to take your goods, not to steal from you, no matter what they are. Those goods can be intangible goods. I cannot take your identity. I cannot take your resources. I don't have a right to take anything that's yours. That's yours from God. And so the idea of loving people is the idea of walking according to Torah at the level of keeping his commandments because these are social goods. You agree with me? Some of us are opining, are we not right now with the condition of our neighborhoods and our society with these crazy people acting an absolute uh, ravening fool? Are we not? Are we not concerned? Well, can you not agree with me that they're transgressors of God's law? They don't care about their neighbor. They don't care about their goods. They don't care about their resources. They're ready to snatch it and take it up. And I've told you that's because there's a vacuum in the heart. When you and I are not operating out of the fullness of God, then we are covetous. Right. And our society is proving itself right now to be more and more given to lawlessness. That's the term lawlessness. So when you and I are lawless, we don't care nothing about respecting property or respecting persons or respecting the welfare of beings or respecting identities. We don't respect gender. We don't respect hierarchy. We don't respect the elders. All of that is inherent in loving your neighbor. Are you hearing me? I had to drill that home because I know sometimes we really don't do the hard work of really making sure we understand the concept of love because love is not some kind of amorphous thing. It's not some kind of uh, um, uh, ambiguous concept. Love is not some Play-Doh that you can shape and mold any kind of way. Love is intrinsically lawful. When you and I have a proper comprehension of love, here's what it looks like. It looks like a person that will never seek to harm another person because it understands the standards of boundaries. That's how love works. And even more so in our relationship with God. If we say we love God, but don't keep his commandments, we're a liar. That's what God is saying. That's what Christ said. That's what first John says. So when we're talking about love, uh, we, you and I want to make sure that we're not dealing with a secular kind of definition of love that leaves all kind of room for our sliding scale to go back and forth and justify us in our whimsical behavior, because that would be an anti-love definition. Love intrinsically is lawful. Love intrinsically is ethical. Love intrinsically is moral. 
Am I making some sense, child of God? And therefore, when Paul says, now we know that whatsoever things the law says, it says to them that are under the law that every mouth may be what? What that means is when we come into the courtroom of God, wherever that may be, today is church. When we gather under the preaching of the word of God, we are in the courtroom of the conscious. And you and I are facing Coram Dale, the word of the living God. If it's properly taught and proclaimed, our hearts and our minds are exposed to God's standard, is it not? And so you and I are constantly being made to stop our mouth whenever we hear God's word. What does that mean, Pastor? It means that we agree with God. When you agree with God, you stop talking. There's nothing else to say. When God speaks, that's it. And what a happy condition is the soul that has learned to agree with God. But you you have people who spend all their life arguing with God, do they not? And we've been there, have we not? When we complain in very irreverent ways, we are arguing with God. But here's what the text says, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become what? All the world may become guilty before God. There it is again. Everybody's guilty. Otherwise, we have no gospel. The gospel is the good news that God can make guilty sinners righteous on the grounds of a stand in. That's the whole purpose of bringing the law to bear on the consciences of men. So we agree, do we not, that there's none righteous, no, not one. We also agree, therefore, that this all began with our first parents. We are sinful in Adam. This is going to be Paul's explication in Romans 5, 12. Hear it again. This is fundamental to the theology of the doctrine of transgression. You need to know it because people will argue, will they not? that you're a sinner, but they're not. They might even argue that they're a sinner, but their mama is not a sinner. I've never seen my mama sin, they say. And I would say that's because you wouldn't look it. Because if you would have looked, you would have seen your mama sinning. That's right. And her mama and her grandmama and your daddy too. We all know daddies are sinners. That's, that's our culture. So, Wherefore, As by one man, sin entered into the world. There it is. This is what we call the doctrine of original sin. Sin entered into humanity's region, realm, into our social construct, into our psychology, into our genetic makeup, into our heart and our mind, into our soul and spirit. We are all sinners because Adam and Eve transgressed God's law and out of their womb came transgressors. And that replication has been the history of mankind up to this very moment. Am I making some sense? We are all sinful in Adam. That's Romans 5.12, a beautiful concept. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by what? Right. So one of the arguments that Paul is making, if you are too dense to comprehend the complexity of sin, just wait long enough. Because we know that sinners are sinners because sinners what? They die. They die. That's how you know. Are you hearing me? God made it up. He made us to live forever. When he created Adam and Eve in his image, in his likeness, he gave them life. He breathed into their nostrils the breath of lives. That's in the plural form in the Hebrew. It meant that they were to live forever and ever at a physical level, at a psychological level, and at a spiritual level. 
But God warned them, don't mess with that tree. If you do, you're going to die on all those levels. So when we talk about death, I'll just give you a little bit of, of a uh, expansion on that concept. When the, when the scripture says, uh, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so that death has passed upon all men, for all men have sin. A great syllogistic argument, is it not? It's very clear. Premise is clear. Minor premise is clear. Conclusion is clear. Adam sinned. We sinned. Adam died. We died because we're all what? Sinners. That's logic right there. Now follow this. The death of human beings is in three categories. It's in the psychological dimension. When you and I are spiritually dead, we're disconnected from God in our mind, in our hearts. Did you get what I just stated? We're disconnected. We have no point of reference at the level of a favorable relationship. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't know God as human beings. We're all created in his image. It does not mean that we're not aware of God. I want to help some of you as you continue to talk with your unsaved loved ones and particularly our brothers and sisters who like to abide in the religion of atheism or agnosticism. They still very much are aware that there's something greater than them in the universe. They might even call him the universe. I pray to the universe. It's just an agnostic. It's not a pejorative thing. It's simply that they aren't persuaded that God has revealed himself. But they know one exists and they're kind of playing the card that just in case he exists, you know, I better give him some props because, you know, when I'm in trouble, I'll need him. I already know that's the case. The point being is that all human beings have an awareness, a consciousness of God. We'll be dealing with that here on Tuesday with the man in the iron cage. We all have a conscience. Even little children have a conscience. This is why we can teach them the gospel as well. And this is why they can embrace a concept like a God, an objective God who is personal at a level of being able to reciprocate with us as an intelligent being with a divine maker. That makes sense, right? Because God made us in his image. And so even though you don't know him in the pardon of your sins and you don't know him in the particulars of biblical teaching, you know him in the sense of his providence. You know him in the sense of his care for all his creatures because he reigns upon the just and the unjust. His mercy is in all the world. Men and women are accruing debt before God right now, treasuring up wrath against the day of judgment because they are living inside of the merciful providences of God and not giving him glory for it. Did I make some sense? So if you're really listening to the brilliance of Paul's argument, as we are going forward, he reaches back to things he's already said. He said that they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That means they know something or maybe by default because of the conditioning of culture. You know what we do as human beings? Because everybody around us is pretending that God doesn't exist. We do, too. We love pretending. We love acting. And we will come together in cahoots to say, hey, you know what? There is no God. Therefore, we can do whatever we want to do. Now, you actually know that that's a calamity waiting to happen. You do know that, right? But we act that out because we want to pretend that God doesn't exist or we want to pretend that God has not sufficiently revealed himself to us so we can behave like we want to. Really, all it is is we want to behave like we want to. 
Please listen to me. That's all we're doing. All we're saying is get rid of the rules. I told you all that last week. I couldn't wait till my wife cut that little thing off on her car so I can drive it free of a consciousness of guilt. Y'all remember that? Right. I was so glad to be saved when I drove her car. Right. Free from sin. Oh, happy condition. And the point is, is that when you and I are becoming aware of our moral and ethical improprieties by all kinds of providential events and your conscience is what God gave you to put these limiters and stops on you and checks on you and checks on you. Really, it's what uh, the author Moses said in Genesis six, that when the Lord looked upon humanity in the days of Noah, he said, you know what? All the imagination of the hearts of the sons of men are bent on nothing but evil. Remember that? And he says, my spirit will not always what? Strive with them. The word means to referee. That's what God does. He referees. He tells you, he blows the whistle up, you off, you out of bounds. He blows the whistle up. You have traveled. He blows the whistle. You have committed infractions. And that's what the Holy Ghost does. He's the spirit of God. He's everywhere present. And because we're spirits and he's spirit, we know intuitively when we're doing wrong. Do we not? And so the argument is valid that we say we all know him at some level. We know him at a enough of a level that when he brings us all before the judgment throne, that's verse 19, when the whole world becomes guilty before God. I mean, that's happening every day, but there is a grand day coming. We call the eschaton, the day of judgment, when every one of us will have to give an answer before God for the things we have done in this body, whether good or bad. You guys know that, right? What a what a phenomenal concept beyond our ability to actually put together, you know, conceptually that every human being who comes under the auspices of being able to prove that they knew what they were doing was wrong, will stand before God. That will take removing the heavens and the earth and setting up a throne in the, the, the broad galaxy to take on the tens of billions of people who have been on this planet for many years. That will be an awesome day, will it not? Now, and I won't get into it if you think that's an absurd thing, but we will be in eternity. So time won't be an issue. We won't be struggling with, well, how long is the pastor going to preach? Because <laughs> we're going to be in eternity. No more clocks. Do you understand that? Right. And so the point of the matter is, is that your Bible consistently lets us know that God has really worked in ways that are remarkably patient with human beings to prove to them that they are sinners. And so we're sinners in Adam, but we are also, subpoint B, sinners where? In ourselves. If Adam didn't sin, I sinned. If Adam didn't sin, I sinned. When I look back at my life, even my earliest consciousness, have you ever done that? Do you go back to two years old? I do. I've told you this. I go back to two years old and I remember... I remember one of the most vivid sins I committed at about two or three years old. It must have been about three. Pastor, you can't do that. I did. Now, I probably wasn't going to be charged with it until I got older because, you know, I didn't know. But when I look back, I said, boy, you really messed up. I took the I got up early one morning. And there ain't nobody ain't nobody up in the house. I got up early one morning. I went downstairs and went into the kitchen. I don't even know what I was doing. Probably looking for some food. But what I saw was the dish rag on the stove. And I grabbed the dish rag and I said, 
this rag dry. And I pull a chair up to the stove, and these one of the burning stoves. You didn't have electric stoves. We had gas stoves. Y'all remember the, the young people don't know this, but we had gas stoves. And I, and I turned the aisle, fire coming up, and I took the dish rag. And the dish rag got lit. And I'm like, whoa! I climbed down off the chair and went over to the garbage can and threw the dish rag in the garbage can and went back to bed. That's the nice sin that I committed. I'm not going to tell you all the other bad ones that came after that. Because they did. This is why men really drink or drug or try to alter their mind. Because when you have a clear mind, boy, you get to go way back and see where your sinnerhood started, right? Where your deviance, where your machinations, where your subtleties, where your deceptive ways started way early. And that's what David says. We go astray from the womb speaking lies. We're born and conceived in sin. John chapter 8 is a beautiful illustration. I want this to be a gospel context for you because what we're talking about, I'm going to start at verse 5. What we're talking about here is the conscience. This will help you again as you and I try to love people because you know, one of the things you and I need to do is in order to love people, we have to know people. Is that right? Yes. In order to love people, you have to know people. But in order to know people, you have to be willing to know yourself. Yes. In order to love people, you got to know people. In order to know people, you got to know yourself. See, because if you don't know yourself well, you can't know other people well. I'm telling the truth. All right. So if I argue with God that he wrote on our heart and on our conscience, as Romans 2, 14, 15 lays out, the law of God. So we know moral ethical uh, principles in our consciences. Every day we're struggling with right and wrong. Are we not? There was a woman that was taken in adultery one day and she was literally in adultery. So we're not going to argue that she was caught in the act of adultery. The problem is she was caught by the legalists and the legalists were the Pharisees. Okay. Now she's guilty. Please hold on to that. You need to, because the adulterous woman here represents you and me. Okay, it's important for you to make sure that you don't fall prey to a lopsided theology. And this is what's going on this morning. Jesus is teaching Sunday school in the temple. It's really true. He's in the temple teaching Sunday school. And here come the Pharisees dragging a case study of adultery into a Sunday school class. But that's because the Pharisees hated this man who was telling everybody you need to stand in righteousness to be right with God. So they brought a woman into his presence and they said, good master, which is what you often do when the snakes go to hissing in your presence. This is called faint praising. Good master. Moses said, if a person is caught in adultery, you are to stone her. What would you do? So what these folks did not know is that they were coming to Sunday school and God was the teacher. They came to the wrong Sunday school class this day, didn't they? They came to the wrong Sunday school class and listen to what it says. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what says out now here, this here again is what we would call a Kafka trap or a bifurcation argument, setting him up to actually oppose Moses. What's the point in asking Jesus what he says if your highest authority is Moses? If they got it right, they don't need to ask Jesus. What are they trying to do? Catch him in a sin. You understand that? 
This is why sometimes like Proverbs chapter 26 around verse four says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be just like him. Sometimes when you catch people that don't have your best interests in view and it's called coming in good faith, just don't say nothing to them. Are you hearing me? Like if they're not coming in good faith, don't pay them any attention. Unless God just woke you up that day for you to beat up on some demons. And sometimes he does. You know, sometimes we, we wake up on that day and it's time to go to war. We, there are some demons we're going after. We, we have put on the panoply. We got the whole armor on. Our sword is drawn. It's not even in the sheet. I'm walking around with my sword drawn. Where the demons at? Some of us are there on those days. Is that not true? It, it, don't mess with me today because my sword is already out. And, and there are days like that because sometimes you and I have to wage war offensively against people that are trying to cause us to stumble. Yeah. Thank you, pastor, for that. Thank you, pastor, Thank for you. that. There you go. So you have to pull your sword out because demons need to know you got a sharp sword. And, and, and here, this is what they said, tempting Jesus that he might have to accuse, that they might have to accuse him. They were waiting for him to modify Torah. Now, Jesus never, ever once modified Torah. He is the personification of Torah. He is the Tanah in person. He is the inflexible, impeccable, inerrant fulfillment of the law of God. He's the one that gave Moses the law. He is the lawgiver. The lawgiver, therefore, will not violate his own laws. And that's what these men are about to find out. But here's the way he's going to do it. He's going to deal with it in an indirect fashion to actually expose them as being unlawful uh, intruders into his classroom. Here's what he says. And sometimes you have to do that. You know, you, you got to deal with folks that's coming into your class being smart alecks. So rather than straight up saying it, Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. Do you guys see that? Now, this is called a mode of pantomiming. You know what pantomiming is? When you pantomime, you are doing in silent kinetic form kinds of actions that render communication, right? That's what pantomiming is, okay? Like here's a door right here and here's a handle and I open the door. That's a pantomime. Y'all got that? Pantomiming is what we used to do many years ago dancing. Right. So here's what it says. This they said that tempting Jesus and he stooped down on the ground. Now, why does he stoop down on the ground? Because the ground signifies for the Jewish people the origin of mankind and its relationship with God. God made man out of the dust of the ground. Breathe into its nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. The essence of that pantomime was the answer that you are seeking comes from the God that made you. The secondary insight of that pantomime is that Jesus was the God that made you who is now writing on the ground to testify to you that you're trying to accuse him when he's the lawmaker. Am I making some sense? Right, right. Because we know that Torah was given to Moses by God using his own finger to write on two tablets of stone, the law of God, the Decalogue, written with the finger of God. What a powerful pantomime of the reality of who Christ was, the word of the living God. And now they are stuck because the pantomime is a parable. And Jesus spoke a lot of parables. And he told his disciples, when I speak in parables, 
It is for those that are without the kingdom of God not to know what I'm up to. It's only given to those of you who are really honoring me as Messiah. You'll understand the parable when you understand who Jesus is. So he writes the law on the ground. He stoops on the ground and writes as if he did not hear them. He's not paying them any attention. Verse seven, notice what it says. Verse seven. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up. He wrote once, whatever he wrote, and then he stood up. When he stood up, the text says he lifted himself up and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him do what? First cast a stone. Now he's quoting Torah. He's quoting Torah. Not only did Torah say you shall not commit adultery. Torah said if you do commit adultery, you shall die. But Torah also said that you're going to only die when the judges have diligently deliberated the facts at hand. Torah also said that the only person that can stone a person worthy of capital punishment are people who themselves are free of that crime. Did y'all get that? Read it for yourself, Leviticus uh, 18 through 22. 16, 16 through 22. It'll lay out the, the judgments for committing adultery and other crimes as well. What was Jesus doing when he said that? He was now penetrating into their conscience. Since they're in the courtroom holding him in accusation of not being a legitimate teacher, he's holding them in accusation of not being legitimate lawyers. Because even though they're bringing a woman that's guilty, they are guilty of the same thing. Watch how this goes. He says, you who are first Uh, You who are without sin among you, if there's anyone among you without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. Now, y'all been taught now for the last 35 minutes, haven't you? There's none righteous. No, not one. These boys should have never got up that day, should they? Because Jesus swore was drawn. Was it not drawn? Jesus already knew Psalm 14. He already knew Psalm 58. He knew that the psalmist had said, there's none righteous. No, not one. So why are these men coming in to condemn a woman to death when the scriptures have already condemned everybody guilty of sin? That was because they were under the delusion of two things. Are you ready? They were not the sinners that God says they were. And this is the problem with church folk today. Right. You can get a little better than other people by learning the Bible and quoting the Bible and doing church and hooping and hollering. And then you look at the uh, naked rebel sinner out there and you think you're better than them. But remember what I told you. It's not enough to have the word or to know the word or to say the word. You got to do the word. You don't get to call them out until you are clear that you yourselves are walking uprightly. That's what the scriptures say. When your obedience is established, then you can help other people obey. Boy, we really had to hold to that standard. Wouldn't nobody be in church today. But you see, on this day, Jesus wanted to teach the whole classroom that he was Messiah. And so here's what's going on. Watch what happens. He again stooped down on the ground and did what? He wrote. Now, I'm going to give you my suggestion. This is pure assumption. The first time he wrote, he wrote the five laws of the Decalogue that have to deal with honoring God. You shall not commit, you shall not, uh, I am the Lord your God, which has brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods beside me. 
you shall not make any graven image or any likeness of me in heaven or in earth or under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall honor the Sabbath day. Those were the four main pillars under the vertical obligation of the children of God. Now, all of these fake lawyers that had come into the classroom were all idolaters because they had actually leaned on Caesar as their king instead of Jehovah. But more than that, they're not only idolaters. We know by inference they are also adulterers. Y'all don't know that, but I do. And that's because that's the way Jesus talked to them all the way through the gospel. You adulterous and wicked generation who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Jesus knew that adultery and idolatry ran rampant in the aristocratic system of Israel. He knew that among the priesthood, they were engaged in all of the vile perversions that you and I know today are being glorified. He knew that. Are you guys hearing me? Jesus knew all men. That's John chapter two as well. He knew it was in their heart. So he could see the guilty lawyers coming. And these Pharisees were lawyers. He saw their guilt. He saw their criminal behavior. And think about this. You are, if you were Jesus, you're the only righteous one in the room. You're the only righteous one in the world. And here comes this woman taken in adultery. And the men that are bringing her are bringing a woman who is really an adulteress. She has not said she wasn't. She hasn't actually even opened her mouth. They dragged her in there. So, you know, these were merciless lawyers. But what Jesus sees is a bunch of criminal lawyers, men more perverse than her, wanting to use her to condemn him. They had another thing coming that day. Now, this is where we believe in the sovereignty of God. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Now, I I told you last week, don't have a meltdown. The sovereignty of God means that God meticulously controls all the events in the world. It does not mean that he approves of them directly, but he uses every event indirectly. Does that make sense? I could go into it in more categories because Christians often mess it up. God will use everything to advance his purposes. And even though he uses everything, everyone to advance his purpose, all that's happening does not meet his direct preceptive approval. But God uses. So Romans chapter five, verse 20 will say where sin abounds, grace what? Doth much more abound. God will use a man who he will ultimately bring to eternal judgment. He will give that man long life, many years. He will even allow him to prosper and be in positions of authority. Yet at the same time, that man is heaping up judgment against himself, treasuring up wrath against himself. Am I making sense? God has plainly said that he will let the wicked flourish and prosper like the Green Bay tree only to finally cut it down. And when that sinner stands before God on the last day, guess what that sinner won't be able to say? That God did not show mercy to him. God is long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Am I making some sense? So within the larger scope of God's direct will, God allows all kinds of events to occur and he manages them for his own glory. For instance, this woman is highly blessed who has engaged in the wicked affair of of, of adultery with another man. Now, pastor, how can you say that? Because this woman, by the providence and sovereignty of God, has been used to be brought into the presence of Jesus, who's the only one that can fix her problem. 
These wicked lawyers that came in to kill her brought her to the only advocate that can stand in her behalf and merit a request with the true judge to give her a plea bargain that you and I know constitutes a stand in righteousness. Those fools didn't know what they were doing, but we call this the drawing work of the Holy Ghost. We know that God has to draw you. You guys know that, right? John chapter 6, 44, no one is coming to me except my father which sent them, draw him to me. So this woman is being drawn to Jesus, is she not? She's being drawn to Jesus in her sin, is she not? She is a notable sinner. What I love about the story is she didn't even have to defend herself. Those crazy lawyers brought her to the one lawyer that knows how to defend sinners by telling them to keep their mouth shut. I love this story, don't you? And they, which when they heard Jesus writing, what's going on? They're convicted. Where are they convicted? In their conscience. Jesus writing. He's writing the other five commandments. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's ox, your neighbor's ass. Anything that is your neighbor's, boom, that law struck them in their conscience. Now look at what the text says. I love this. And they, which when they had heard, and this is wild, this is wild because Jesus is not talking. They're hearing it in their what? This is where the battle is. This is what a battle is, is it not? They're hearing it in the conscience. They're convicted of their own conscience. <laughs> Here it is. And they went one by one, beginning at the elders, even unto the last. They went out one by one. They went out one by one. Why? There's none righteous, no, not one. Hey, the courtroom was cleared out. When Jesus stood up, he had to talk to the woman because everybody else was gone. I got a feel. Listen, I got a feeling the whole class was gone. Not only the lawyers, but everybody else. Too. I think I'm going to another class. I'm out. Right. <laughs> this was tough today. This was tough. Jesus is laying out the law. And when you lay out the law, all of us are guilty. All of us are guilty. Notice what the text says. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Isn't that beautiful? Right here is a, again, this is here what we call an allegory or a parable of the way God brings the sinner to Christ. He will bring the sinner to Christ with all kinds of nefarious characters, with nefarious intents. And believe me, the Pharisees are nothing but Christians who are walking self-righteously. Some of us are that way in this room. You used to be, raise your hand. You know you are a Pharisee. Some days you wake up, just want to condemn all kinds of people. Right. It's a good thing Jesus saves Pharisees. Is that right? Did you, and so, you know, you'll, you'll bring a brother or a sister or somebody to the judgment throne. All you need is one other person to agree with you. And y'all bringing that person to the judgment throne in your own house, at the coffee shop, at the job, by the water cooler, bringing people to the judgment throne. And you are as guilty as sin yourself. Come on now. now am I making some sense? <laughs> I love this, though. Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When it's you and Jesus, you are good to go. When it's just you and Jesus, 
And, and, and I would actually recommend before you die, clear everybody out. Then just make sure it's you and Jesus. Because snakes are diabolical. Listen to this. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, woman, where are those thine accusers? Now stop right there. That's the whole issue. This is why the discussion in the book of Romans is about righteousness. This is where men and women have a problem with God because God is a righteous God. And because God is a righteous God, our conscience is either accusing us or excusing us. And we engage in all kinds of machinations and gymnastics to overcome the guilt mechanism in our conscience. And when you're not ready to meet God and to negotiate with God, you're definitely not coming to a Bible-based church that expounds the word of God. Because this is way too close to the fire. Am I making some sense? We'll do entertainment church. We'll do noisy church. We'll do all kind of works religion church, but we're not coming to a church where the Bible is going to be open and everyone is going to be made to be guilty before God. And that's where we are right now. You, me, every one of us are the folks that cleared out of that Sunday school class that day. Nobody's left there but Jesus and the woman. When Jesus had lifted up himself, he saw none but the woman. He said unto you, where are your accusers? Hath no man what? Whoa! Do you see how good God was to this woman? Guilty. Caught in the act. On her way to judgment. And God intervened by having Jesus teach that Sunday school class. Do you see it? Notice what the text says as we move on. She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. This is why we call Jesus the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Only a God who can pay for your sins can forgive you of your sins. Is this not oh happy day? Oh, happy day. Is this not oh happy day for this woman? Is this girl not happy as can be? And I I tell you what else, whoever it was that was trying to run up in her and then bring her to Jesus, they going to cross the street when they see that sister from now on. Because she got an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he will plead her case. He will plead her case. But let us tie this down as we go on. Go and sin no more. That means you don't walk in your former former pattern of rebellion and disobedience before God. You lay a hold of your advocate and ask him for grace to be a new creature in Jesus Christ. This is what we teach about the grace of God. Y'all got that? So under point number two, we are sinful in ourselves as is indicated by all of these men walking away. No one is worthy to cast the first stone if we really obey Torah. So point C, we are sinful as a what? Society. So we're sinful in Adam. We are sinful in ourselves. We're sinful as a society. I just want you to get this optic. I love the way Isaiah put it, 750 years before Jesus. Isaiah chapter one, verse four through seven. Just listen to this. It's a little graphic, but I believe it's true. Here's what Isaiah says. Our sinful nation. A sinful nation. That means the whole society is sinful. Y'all got that? Ah, is a Hebrew term that really is grasping at an emotional sort of resolve to say something that is painfully perplexing. Isaiah is himself 
a Jewish citizen. He is a Judite. He is part of the kings of Judah prophets. He loves Jerusalem. He loves the people of God, but he's God's lawyer first. Remember, prophets are lawyers and they have to tell the truth in spite of interest. Ah, sinful nation. Ah, sinful nation. A people what? Laden with iniquity. Not just a little sin, laden with it. A seed of what? Evildoers. What that teaches us is the replication of the sinful nature on the part of parents. Is that not true? A seed of evildoers. Children that are corruptors. Not just, uh, you know, young people, pre-adult or adolescent children. That's not the concept. The children here meaning they're supposed to be the children of God. But what they are are children of corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. That's Romans chapter one, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Doesn't that text work here? They have provoked the Lord of Israel, the Holy One of Israel to anger, and they are gone away backwards. In other words, they didn't left off with God. They're just gone, flat out gone. Look at the next verse. Let's walk this through. Notice what it says. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more because the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. Look at verse six. From the sole of the feet, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it. Wounds and bruises and putrefying sores that have not been closed up, neither bound, neither mollified with ointment. Is this not a detestable description of a diseased person from the head to the feet? And what that is describing is the consequences of sin. Do y'all know that? Do you understand that sin will ruin your life psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, and even physically? Right, this is a perfect description of the runaway train of sin when you and I are slaves to it at the addiction level. I know something of this by experience in my family, okay? I know that when one gets wrapped up in a level of addictive behavior, their body rots from the inside out. I know what it looks like when the body is so toxic from the drugs that the pores start to emit all kinds of, of poisons and pusses because the body is totally toxified. Am I making sense? This is called sin. Okay, and, and the problem with it is that when we are in the early stages of sin, we can all look good, cute and everything. But you have a terminal disease that over time will work its way out with little subtle little manifestations. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Subtle manifestations, little subtle manifestations. And those are warnings to you. The little subtle ones, I'm talking like herpes and complex Little, little, you know, dermatological expressions. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And, and you can cover it up with your clothes, like, like lay them in the, uh, them in the leper. But it's going to spread until it's arrested by grace. And it has to be arrested by grace because grace is the only medicine that can heal that kind of disease. Am I making some sense? Right. Your country's desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. 
your land. Strangers devour it in your presence and it's desolate as overthrown by. Isn't this a horrible predicament for a country that really is supposed to be a shining city on a hill? manifesting the presence of Yahweh and the glory of God. It's the exact opposite, is it not? Well, that's the condition of the human race before God. We're in a messed up condition, are we not? Point number one, therefore, is done. We are a sinful society. Look at Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 and 7. I want to cap this off. We're dealing now, whether you know it, with a classical doctrine called the doctrine of total depravity. You don't know that if you haven't been taught sound doctrine in your churches. That's what we're dealing with now. The doctrine of total depravity is underscored by the principle that there is none good, no, not one. Even the best among us are not good enough because we're still contaminated by sin. We may have different measures of the contamination showing itself. Some of us can look dignified. We just got one little blemish here or there. Others got major eczema manifestation and others yet are even worse. Am I making some sense? And we will foolishly try to judge each other on the measure of the extent of the decay of our sinfulness, not knowing I'm just as bad as them in time it will show up. See what I'm getting at? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God in that regard. But we are all as unclean things. There it is. Now notice the inclusive principle. We are all. Not some of us, all of us. See, our problem is we're unclean and God is holy. We are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as what? Menstrual cloths. Right, see, so this term underscores the radical paradox of men appearing to be good, but in God's eyes, they are nothing but the refuge that a woman dispenses every cycle when there was not a conception of a child being brought forth, right? Do y'all got that, get that? That is a gross analogy that Isaiah is using on his own people, right? right. Israel was supposed to be the tutorial uh, people teaching people how to be holy, how to be clean how to be pure, how to walk in a kind of sanctification where they are not contaminated by unclean things. And here they are being represented by the prophet as totally rejected by God as something that must be on the outside. You take a menstrual cloth and you take it out of the society and you put it and bury it in the ground or you burn it in the uh, dump heat at the end of the city called Tophat. Y'all got that? That's the description of us by nature. It's you too, me too. Notice what he says. And we all do fade as a leaf. See it? And we all do fade as a leaf. Not only are we like filthy rags in our own, own righteousnesses, but we are all fading as a leaf. I want you to get this. You might look cute now, but you ain't going to look cute forever. You're fading as we speak. You're fading as we speak. And so you never let your beauty, remember this is called the sin of face. There's this, this, this arrogance or pride of grace. I've taught you about that. And then the pride of face. You got all kind of people selling themselves because of their beauty. And they work hard in the idolatrous fervor of trying to make sure they look good like some kind of female goddess or male goddess. Do they not? Right? And, 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 and don't want to admit one day, the hair going to go gray. 
And all that proportion is going to start descending because gravity is going to set in. I don't care. I don't care how hard. I know you're going to work hard to burn all them calories. It's still going to drip. It's going to drip. One day it's going to drip. One day it's going to drip. And you know it because you now you're putting on more clothes. Now, clothes is a great metaphor. That's a beautiful metaphor. Cover that thing up. That's called the righteousness of God in Christ. Cover that thing up. Point number two, because I got three I need to get done. Point number two, there is one righteous, only one. Yes, there are none that are righteous. No, not one. But there is one righteous and only one. This is the argument that we make in the gospel, was it not? The argument we make in the gospel, again, is the paradox, not the contradiction, but the paradox that the Bible can very plainly say all have sinned and at the same time accept one. And that one who has not sinned has came into the world of sinners. He's come into our world to prove that he did no sin. In him was no sin at all. He is the only righteous one in the world. That's our second point. Notice what it says. There's, there's, there is only one righteous, only one. There is one righteous, only one. And Paul argues this in Romans 3, verse 21 through 23. Let me move on so we can close it out. Listen to verse 21. But now the righteousness of God. There it is. That's our topic, is it not? That's Paul's whole argument. God is righteous. But now the righteousness of God. Apart from the law is what? Manifest. There it is. There it is. If you listen, Paul now is going to give you the brilliance of how God deals with an inexplicable situation on the part of human beings. Verse 19 said the whole world is guilty because the whole world is under the judgment of the law. And then he says over in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law. Do you see it? Apart from the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Watch this. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing idea? What he's doing now is he's opening up the argument to let you and I know what was really a closed argument in chapters one through three. Either you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. And because you're one of the two, your problem is that. The Jews are guilty and the Gentiles are guilty. That means everybody's in a hopeless condition, but God. What God did was establish a pathway by which righteousness could be accomplished apart from the works of the law. This is what Paul is arguing now. There is a way by which sinners can be be made to be righteous before God apart from the works of the law. This is the scandal of the gospel I want to touch on and close out. Is that possible, child of God, that there is a way in which God can declare men and women righteous apart from the works of the law? Is it? Absolutely. You better hurry up and say yes. Yes. And there's only one way. Listen to what he says here. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Here it is, unto all and upon all them that what? Believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 24, 
being justified, made righteous, declared righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that is in our stand in righteousness. Did that make some sense? This is what he's doing now. He's saying to you that when you look at the law, there is no way out. But if you look to God, he's made a way out by accomplishing a righteousness outside of the works of the law. That is outside of the works of the law on your part. So you and I are guilty. We're guilty. But Christ came to prove that he was not. That's what we're rendering under point number two. Two subcategories under point number two. He is the righteous last Adam. Didn't we just read in Romans, pull up Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Didn't we just read in Romans chapter 5, 12, in Adam, sin entered into the world? For by one man, sin entered into the world and uh, death has passed upon all because all of sin, right? We call it Adam. Here, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the last Adam. Now, this gets into another very uh, important and complex doctrine called the doctrine of federal headship. I won't be here long. But the way God deals with all human beings is under the federal headship of either Adam one or the last Adam. Did y'all hear what I just stated? In other words, we are all guilty in Adam one because Adam one is our federal head. As Adam sinned, so we are sinners. Okay, we share in his guilt, not only genetically, but by action. That makes sense, right? Every seed bearing herb brings forth fruit of its own kind. If you have a bad tree, it's going to bring forth bad fruit. And the bad tree was Mama Adam and uh, Mama, Mama Eve and, and Daddy Adam. They were a bad tree. And we are the bad fruit coming from it in Adam. Then, Pastor, how do we escape the condemnation that comes in Adam? Because 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says, in Adam, all die. How do we escape that? You've got to be taken out of Adam one and put in Adam two. You've got to be taken out of the first Adam and put in the last Adam. Did y'all hear what I just stated? And you heard it last night. This only comes by a blessed doctrine called election. You can't get yourself out of Adam one into Adam two. Did you hear me? God has to take you out of the old man and put you in the new man. I'm going to teach you that before we close. You need to know you don't get to walk up out of the prison cell of the curse of Adam over into the freedom, which is in Christ, unless God puts you there. Otherwise, you would be getting there by the works of your own hand. It would still be meriting righteousness by your action. But if God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy and without blame before him in love. He placed you in Christ, even though you were born in Adam, so that in time when the gospel comes to you, it lets you know that you were placed in the last Adam who becomes your stand in righteousness. That's how you escape your sin. Are y'all hearing me? Listen to what it says. So as it is written, the first man was a what? Living so, who is the first man? Adam. I already showed you that. This is Genesis two seventeen. Don't go there. God uh, two seven. God created Adam out of the dust of the ground. That's why Jesus rolled on the ground. Adam was created out of the dust of the ground, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a what? Living soul. Now listen. He became a living soul 
but he wasn't what Jesus was. Because here you're being told that Jesus is the last Adam and he was superior to the first Adam. So we'll talk about that briefly. Notice what it says. As it is written, the first man was, our first man, Adam, was a living soul. The last Adam, which is who? Jesus is made a what? Quickening spirit. So the qualitative difference between Adam 1 and the last Adam is that in Adam 1, we all die. In the last Adam, we are all alive. We're all made alive by the resurrection of Jesus. The quickening spirit is the spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead so that he ever lives to make intercession for us. He possesses eternal life and because he lives, we shall live also. Are you hearing me? The qualitative nature of the last Adam is that he could never die. Even though he died, he what? Rose again from the dead by the power of the spirit to live forever. That is the beauty of the song we sung last night in him, right? Never to die again, right? He rose again, never to die again. He's made a quickening spirit. And everyone that's in that last Adam is also made alive. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, start at verse 21. I think it's going to be verse 22, but I want you to capture this before we close. For since by man came what? By men also came also what? That's what we mean by spiritual life. Every believer has been raised from the dead when the gospel has come in power and given you new life in Christ. Every believer is operating out of spiritual life right now. Am I making some sense? You don't just have life, you have spiritual life. This is what I was saying to you earlier about prior to our salvation, we're disconnected from God. We're disconnected from God in our mind. We're disconnected from God in our affections. We have no desire for God at any substantial level. Am I making some sense? We will accommodate God when we get in trouble. That don't make you saved. Did you hear what I just stated? A relationship with God where he's just fire insurance is not saving faith. I want you to hear what I'm saying. A relationship with God where all he is is somebody that you call on to rescue you when you get in trouble is not saving faith. Saving faith is when God saves you, he redeems you, he forgives you, he gives you his spirit, and that brings you into a relationship with him. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Where you draw near to God as God draws near to you. Where Jesus makes his home in your heart, which makes room for the Father and the Holy Ghost. Where all three blessed persons secure you in a walk to glory, where they show up in your life frequently enough for you to know that you have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and you are not free to do whatever you want to do. Ah, hear me now, child of God. Hear me now, child of God. This is what your elder said. We are the freest slaves on the planet. When Jesus died, he bought you lock, stock, and barrel by the blood of his righteousness. You are owned by the son of the living God. And now you and I are called to walk with him. This is what Paul is arguing here in our text. And so we'll close by looking at point number three so we can wrap this up. I'll deal with this a little bit later. Point number three says, this was the chosen one. Who is that? Christ. Verse 24 through 27 puts it like this. 
being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith. Now, some of y'all might have a real struggle with that word propitiation because it's more than two syllables. I get it. The word simply means that Jesus was lifted up all through the Old Testament to be the lamb that was slain to take away our sin. Propitiation is the consequence of the shedding of blood that satisfies the wrath of God. Did y'all get what I just stated? So the Bible raises Jesus up to be the lamb of God from Genesis chapter three all the way through. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, did they not? They ran from from God. They didn't run to God, they ran from God. Didn't God have to go get them? Did he have to go get them? And when he came to get them, didn't he know their problem already? And when he came to them, all he asked them to do was tell the truth, didn't he? Didn't they tell the truth? They told the truth and nothing but the truth. And the Bible says, if we will confess our sins, he is just and faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now they were naked, clothed with fig leaves that were withering. Weren't those fig leaves withering? That means you're going to be butt naked in about 10 minutes. And God clothed them with coats of skin. Did he not? Where did he get the coat from? But a lamb that he slayed and shed his blood and clothed those guilty sinners in the stand in righteousness called Jesus Christ. And from that day to this day, God is clothing sinners in the righteousness of Christ. Am I making some sense? Please understand it. He hunted you down. You didn't hunt him down. He came after you. You didn't come after him. And when he caught you in the corner, you had to raise your hands and say, I quit. I'm caught in Jesus name. It's really true. Yeah, when you have to negotiate on God's terms, it makes sense to believe on the Lord Jesus. It really does. When the difference between hell and heaven is faith in Christ, that becomes an easy solution, doesn't it? But even that has to be the grace of God. There's a lot of people have heard the simple gospel that we're about to close on. Paul has laid this out. Jesus was made a propitiation. He was the spotless lamb of God who died for sins, anyone and everyone that comes to him. That's what the text is, that he becomes for all of us, anyone, all men and women are free to come to Christ in order to be delivered from their sins. This is the beauty of the text that's laid out in verse 22. Even the righteousness of Christ, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, our faith in Christ, our faith towards Christ, unto what? All and upon all all them that believe, for there is no difference. You see what he has done? He has told us that Christ, our stand in righteousness, is to be believed. Did y'all get that? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So what he is about to do now is lift up the doctrine of pistis, pistuo. It's the Greek term to believe. He's about to lift up the doctrine of faith. And the doctrine of faith stands over against the doctrine of works. He's argued that by the works of the law, none of us will be justified. So if you and I are going to be justified, it has to be apart from the law. How then, pastor? By faith. What that means is you have to believe and trust in somebody else meriting for you what you could not merit for yourself. Does that make sense? It's a humbling appeal because the people that walk by faith, listen to me now, 
The people that walk by faith, trusting in Jesus, are willing to admit to everybody in the world, demons, devils, angels, that in me dwelleth no good thing. They're willing to admit, except that God had provided a sacrifice for me, I would have perished under my own sin. They're willing to admit that the stand-in righteousness for anyone is obtained only by faith, only by the gift of faith. And what does that do? It excludes the thing that works religion. It's always seeking, boasting. Here's how he closes in verse 28 through 31. Listen to these words. I'm starting at verse 27. Notice what it says. Where is boasting then? It's what? By what? Law. By the uh, law of works? No. But by the law of what? So faith is not a mechanism for boasting. Faith destroys boasting. Because faith doesn't say, look to me. Faith says, look to Christ. That's the nature of saving faith. Here it is. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Isn't Paul a brilliant lawyer? Isn't he swinging the courtroom doors open to all kind of sinners to come to the judge who has an advocate for sinners in Jesus Christ the righteous? Cannot Paul see the beauty of the gospel that he said he wasn't ashamed of working efficaciously right now? Are you guys keeping up with his argument? I may not be making a great explanation of it, but please understand he is walking you right up to the one thing that gives God glory and that's faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to it as we close. He says in verse 30, seeing it is one God which shall justify the Jews by what? And the uncircumcision through what? So he just talked about Jew and Gentile again, didn't he? He says, both of y'all can only be justified, that is made righteous, by faith. What that means is you got to abandon your works religion. You got to abandon your circumcision. You got to abandon your genealogical assumption. We be Abraham's children. We all Abraham's children by faith. This same Paul who was a Jew said it in Galatians 3. If you be in Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs of the promises of God. This is what he's going to argue in chapter 4 when he brings Abraham into the courtroom. And Abraham will plead to all of us, hey, look, I'm only saved by grace. I want you to know that when God called me, he called me as a pagan heathen in Mesopotamia in the regions of Ur of the Chaldee, and I was worshiping the moon God. God came after me. That's what Abraham's going to say. God called me, and I heard his voice. And God said, follow me. I have a plan for you. And it had nothing to do with temples. It had nothing to do with sacrifices. It had nothing to do with offerings. It had nothing to do with any of the sacerdotal stuff that came in with Judaism. It was a sinner. He was called a Gentile. That's what Paul is going to argue. And God saved him by grace. And he followed God. And he laid down some typical patterns that the rest of his children had to follow, starting with circumcision, because the circumcision wasn't about the Jew. It was about God's promise to Abraham through a seed, singular, and that's seat was Jesus. Did that make some sense? 
The Jews were thinking it's about them. No, it was about a seed that was running through the Jewish line, making its way through the Judite line. And he's called the son of David, the righteous branch. And all of us are saved through the merits of the obedience of our stand in righteousness, Jesus the Christ.